0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. So, the Prime Minister will call a committee to decide if another committee is needed, to decide whether Justin Trudeau knew about the Chinese election interference that benefited the Liberals, that sounds more confusing than productive. Here, Scott Thompson.
2: Oh man. <sighs> All right. Good afternoon. I won't comment on that. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton today. The gang's all here. Join to the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900 CHML.com. All right. Playing, uh, Tragically Hips 50 Mission Cap. And again, a, another audible, which is, uh, called late and will just, you know, will on the board, man. He's, he's nimble. He's nimble. Uh, grabs the ball and runs and, uh, Will, can you give me 50 mission cap the hip instead? So we deviate from the Rolling Stone top 200 singers of all time. Thank God. And uh, and we play the hip. And the reason being, and, and I didn't realize this, this is sort of a story that's under the, you know. Anyway, uh, so as we talked about yesterday, a big political weekend in the Hammer. The provincial liberals had their, um, um, you know, their bake sale and such. Their uh, meeting their convention there. And uh, then the federal conservatives, Pierre Polievre, they did uh, some sign- uh, you know, some, you know, whistle stop and raising money thing, whatever. I don't know. What they, is there an election? Uh, anyway, so that was happening in Stony Creek. So uh, apparently, you know, when you go to political rallies, they, pay, they play music and such. And uh, this was at a venue that, you know, hosts parties and weddings and all sorts of stuff. And, uh, you know, if you've ever DJed or played music or anything like those venues, whatever, well, I'll leave it at that. So anyway, you know, you go in there and you play music and people dance and and have a good time, or there's a political speech of some sort. So, anyway, at this uh, Pierre PolyEver thing, there is tragically hit played uh, 50 Mission Cap, hence the reason we played it today. Whew, that was a long way to go. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, what's the big deal? Who gives a rat's rear end? You would think. But apparently people went on social media and, and, and did you know, you know, uh, the guitarist from the Tragically Hip, did you know that they're playing your songs at a, at a Pierre Poly Ever convention? And I guess, I don't know. I, uh, those right of center aren't allowed to listen to the Tragically Hip. They're not allowed to purchase their music. <laughs> I don't know what the deal is. Uh, the Tragically Hip is only for those that are the far left of center. Those in the center, you're not allowed to listen to the hip or, heaven forbid, the right. So all this blue ha ha starts on social media. How dare
0: they do that?
2: And then, of course, um, y- you know, what many do. And... <laughs> Um, You know, they speak before they really know all of the history um, and and what's going on, and that um, venue and the people all there uh, had the right to play the Tragically Hips 50 Mission Cap because they pay the SOCAN licensing fee, being a venue that hosts these sorts of events, weddings, whatever. So... There's no, there's nothing illegal. There's no, in other words, you can't say, no, you can't play our song in your wedding venue or your political hall or wherever it is. So then it's like, so that's, that's where we are. So a, a big hoopla, blah, blah, big whatever. And I'm not sure if you're a mus- musician, if you're selling donuts, if you're uh, manufacturing clothes, doing whatever, you want to cut your audience in half. You know, or even it's via gender, the way our divisive prime minister has cut people in half. You cut your audience in half. So, anyway, I think it's amusing that it got to this. And once again, there's social media. Yay! Just kicking that fireball down the road, letting it get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden, oh, never mind. They're entitled, it's licensed, they paid for it. So, uh, anyway, it just shows you the political discourse of what's going on out there. But now, um, you know, you're not even allowed to. You can't play left music in a right venue. Or if the people in attendance are to the right. Right. Wow! All right, uh, we'll leave it at that. Uh, the fallout from the announcement yesterday of uh, of the uh, the whole interference by the Chinese Communist Party into the election uh, opposition want a full inquiry, a full public inquiry. We've got a committee to decide whether the next direction that we'll go in. Uh, well, we're running late, so we'll skip the. Uh, let's go right to uh, this. Is how the. I guess opposition reacted. Here's what Pierre Polyevra had to say about uh, the committee, but no public inquiry.
3: He hired the former CEO of the same Trudeau Foundation that had received the money from China to write a report about it. And now he's trying to cover it up again with a secret process that he controls. We want the opposite. He wants a secret process. We want an open process. He wants... To control it, we want it to be independent from him. And oh, by the way, he's going to appoint a special rapporteur, which of course will be another establishment liberal, appointed by him, that will come out and say, everything is fine, let's just close the book and move on and let the dictatorship in Beijing once again interfere to help Justin Trudeau get reelected. Conservatives want exactly the opposite of closed and controlled. We want open and independent an open, independent, public inquiry to get to the truth and make sure it never happens again. We need to bring home control of our democracy, bring home control of our country, rather than allowing foreign dictatorships to manipulate our interests.
2: All right, Jagmeet Singh of the NDP on this, and, agree- and again is looking for a public inquiry.
4: And we had said from the beginning the two criteria we have for restoring confidence in our electoral process and responding to Canadians' questions has to, one, be independent, but two, has to also be a public, and that's not going to be satisfied by that committee. And res- with respect to the uh, special rapporteur, we uh, are open to providing suggestions. Uh, it will be the government that will decide who that is. We, we expect it to be someone that has uh, credibility and someone that is respected uh, across, the, across the country.
2: A special rapporteur. Had you heard that up until yesterday? You know, over the years, we've, and it seems that this, even though we talk about it quite a bit, it seems to be growing, whether that's post-pandemic, whether that's just the financial situation and times are, you know, people are desperate at this time, uh, but we're constantly talking about scams and various things that, um, you know, ways you can protect yourself or what have you to keep your eyes open for, whether it's, you know, someone knocking on your door or, or giving you a, a call of some sort. So a new study from Visa Canada finds that a third of Canadians have fallen for fraud uh, of some sort more than once to talk more about all of this. Mariam Saeed is with us, Head of Risk for Visa Canada, and with us now. Mariam, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
5: Thank you, Scott. I'm well. Thank you for
2: having me here today. Wow. Head of Risk for Visa Canada. You must be looking over your shoulder all the time. This, uh, What I can't believe about this is we seem to be talking about it all the time, yet it continues to evolve. Why are we seeing what we're seeing now, Mariam?
5: So whether it's at the workplace or you're on the go, Canadians receive multiple offers by phone, text and email for free gifts and traps to act now to supply personal information before a vital service gets cut off. Your personal information is private to you and you have to be extremely vigilant about where and who you're sharing that information with. Um, and you're right. Around 35 percent of Canadians confess to calling for a scam more than once.
6: So,
2: uh, we've certainly heard of the phone scams and even back in the day, door to door. How does this involve credit cards? How does this involve Visa? What have you seen?
5: So, um, it's it's, uh, typically a scam where you get a text or an email with a link that requests you for personal identifiable information. And this could be your crowd details, your home address, your name. Once you've given a threat actor or a fraudster that information, they can use that to monetize the credentials they have stolen.
2: Hmm. So basically, they're tracking personal information and eventually have access to your credit card numbers or number.
5: Exactly, exactly, Scott
2: how is this increased more post pandemic um and as i mentioned earlier obviously times are tough right now people are feeling the pinch uh, are you seeing an increase at this time
5: absolutely as we trans- we we've, we've all transacted more digitally over the past 2 years covid kind of forced us from that in person environment to online transactions um and so we've seen fraudsters take advantage of the vulnerability that is created and so absolutely, one, there is a lot more information, your personal identifier information, your payment information available online for fraudsters to manipulate and take over. Whether they're manipulating you or they're stealing it from a website of a merchant, um, th- there is a huge attack surface uh, um, where um, threat actors are playing today.
2: And again, as you said, they access everything you have, and your credit card information is just one of those things. Whether it's your social insurance number or what have you, uh, we forget about how many layers there are to this. Uh, what about tips here, Maryam? What what can What are some of the things we can do? Basic things that can protect ourselves.
5: Excellent. And so, I would first say always assume you're a target. Play detective. Be cautiously mm. suspicious. Um and some of the, the 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 a few good things you can do to practice um, um to to ensure security hygiene is uh update your passwords don't use the same password across all your apps across your banking apps and your um other apps avoid clicking on links uh, that are unsolicited whether it's by email or by text and never give out sensitive information to someone over the phone unless you have verified the source. Um, and, and those are just some easy, easy tips uh, that everyone can use and keep, um, keep the ecosystem safe.
2: It seems really basic, but but as we've said, these things just keep evolving and getting more and more realistic. It's hard to tell sometimes. Um, you talked about a third uh, have fallen for frauds. That's been that's obviously what has been reported. I hear when talking to various agencies, a lot of this stuff does not go uh, does not get reported. How important is it that we do when we realize this has happened? Report it.
5: Um. So I would say that as soon as you know that a fraud is reported, you inform your issuing bank. Uh, second, there are a lot of, there's a lot of information uh, available on visa.ca where you can educate yourself, uh, whether you're a business or you're a consumer, you can educate yourself on how to keep your safe. Prevention is always the best way to go.
2: You know, correct me if I'm wrong, Marianne, but maybe people would say, well, you know, it's Visa, they're a giant company. If I make a mistake or if something happens or something gets stolen, they'll just cover it. What do you think about people who would fall back on that position?
5: What I'd say is that trust and security is at at the core of what we do here at Visa. We spent over $10 billion in people, process and technology. To ensure security and safety for the for the ecosystem. And that is that is something we're constantly uh upping the game on. As fraudsters get more sophisticated, so do we.
2: A new study from Visa Canada finds that a third of Canadians have fallen for fraud more than once. Maryam Saeed with us head of risk for Visa Canada and how you can protect yourself. And a lot of it's just common sense. Maryam, thanks for the time as always. Uh be well. Good luck.
5: Thank you, Scott. Take care.
3: with Scott Thompson. Uh, Does it come with a costume? Maybe a cape or (laughs) a sword? Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900
6: The independent special rapporteur will make public recommendations which could include a formal inquiry or some other independent review process.
2: Opposition asking for, uh, in all parties, asking for a public inquiry into uh, the election interference from the Chinese Communist Party into the last two elections. Uh, the Prime Minister, for the longest time, said, nope, not going to do it. And then finally, a uh, quickly called news conference yesterday at about 5.30, just as we're leaving the air, really, uh, we aired the uh, the initial portion of the, uh, of the news conference, saying that he was basically going to uh, appoint a rapporteur, 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 sorry, Um, to study whether we need to do that. So it's a committee to sort of study whether another committee is needed. Uh, And obviously, uh, you've heard from Pierre Polyever on this and uh, Jagmeet Singh. Uh, They're not buying into it. Uh, Where do we go from here? Let's bring in Wesley Wark, uh, Senior Fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation and with us now.
4: Wesley, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks. I'm doing well, Scott. It's interesting times, um, as the Chinese curse goes, and I'm delighted to talk to you about it. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, your thoughts on what
2: we've seen? Do we need a public inquiry to clear the air here? And, you know, we're hearing today, too, uh, Chinese Canadians have been complaining about this for years, and now we're finally taking notice. So do we need an inquiry?
4: I, I've um, long maintained that I don't think a public inquiry uh, could work in the ways that, that people hope it will work in response to uh, allegations of Chinese election interference. And there really are two principal reasons for that. One is that that any public inquiry, likely um, chaired by a sitting ju- a retired judge, would take, I would say, a minimum of three years from start to finish before we would see any any findings and recommendations in such a process and and that's probably a year past the next federal election so you know it is it is not a timely process it's it's a slow blinding mm. uh process that that can have great value but you have to be prepared to let it take its time to do its work and the second thing is that i think many people somehow believe and including some opposition political leaders that that if you hold a, a public inquiry with some set of rules that you'll be able to, you know, get to the heart of this controversy, really find out what ceases new, uh, what, you know, how the prime minister was briefed and so on. And that's simply not going to happen because at the heart of this is uh, a necessary protection of secrets and secrets that are never going to be divulged except in part selectively through these leaks but generally a broader picture of secrets that is never going to be divulged to the public. So we'll never be any the wiser about some of, uh, some of these details. Uh, and, and I must say that, that, um, you know, although there is always skepticism about the protection of secrets in this case, based on the leaks that we've seen to the media, part of what's at stake uh, and there be maybe more part of what's at stake is, is clearly an ability on the part of ceases and perhaps the communication security establishment to be able to intercept chinese communications from beijing to its consulates in in you know toronto and vancouver and perhaps outward from there and and that's a critical intelligence capacity that we need not just now but for the future and, and couldn't be imperiled through you know revelations at a, at a public inquiry so on the grounds of, of um, uh, a slow-moving nature of a public inquiry and, it, and its, uh, you know, um, inability to um, be able to reveal in public uh, the details of these cases of the kind that opposition parties want to hear about, it just doesn't uh, make any sense to me. The problem the government has is that the avenue that does make sense is is one that they know opposition parties will uh, reject and they know that Canadians uh will not fo- you know fully support and and that's using the existing review independent review bodies uh that the liberals set up between 2017 and 2019 all um, right, Wesley, I'm let me let me
2: interrupt you, you here because we've, we've only got so much time and basically you've just said, oh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that no, you don't think it would be a good I- idea to have the public inquiry because there's just too much top secret stuff. That all sounds great, but at the end of the day, Canadians want to know if there was Chinese influence in this election and what the Prime Minister knew about it and how it benefited his party. So, can we find out that information without selling the farm and endangering the lives of all Canadians with success? Ex- by exposing security secrets? Because at the end of the day, all Canadians want to know is what the heck is going on. So what, in your opinion, is the best way to get to that?
4: Um, So, Scott, it's a fair enough question. I understand Canadians and and indeed my own desire to to know these things. But but in in large measure, we already know the answer to that question. Um, And we know the answer to that question through, you know, the work of the What is often referred to as the mechanism sounds a bit impersonal that was created to, to monitor election interference in the federal elections in 2019 and 2021. In neither case did it uh, have credible uh, intelligence that, uh, that it believed, uh, indicated any, uh, you know, significant impact by election interference by any party. Um, and we have as well the independent report from, Morris Rosenberg, whose whose name has been dragged through the mud a bit recently, um, but who uh, was established as the reviewer of the most recent um, um, work of that, you know, that um, mechanism in government, and reported uh, recently that again uh, this was also found, the
2: individual uh, that was in charge of uh, that was the head of the Trudeau Foundation when the donations apparently from the Chinese Communist Party were made to the Trudeau Foundation which in yeah, part some have already government been
4: returned former deputy minister, served right. in government.
2: So why not just so again there's the arg- there, there's the argument uh, there's the uh, argument Wesley sorry sorry for me interrupting but yeah. it is like obviously there needs some, to be some transparency here how are Canadians going to feel confident that anything the prime minister is doing because basically we're now got a committee to decide whether we need to go forward with a public inquiry so you're saying that would take forever but now we got a committee ahead of that before we even get to there if that is the yeah. final outcome
4: yeah scott I, I would say we're we're now um, in a ridiculous mess um and and it's a mess um com- compounded by by many factors but what what the prime minister essentially said yesterday in this uh, late afternoon um, speech press conference was that, that he was going to set up three uh, different kind of review bodies for entities, this special rapporteur, uh, a review by the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, another review by the National Security Intelligence Review Agency. You know, the media in- responded to this in part by saying this is a stalling tactic, I think it's just a desperation tactic because, uh, the government has kind of lost control, uh, of this whole story and, and partly, um, it's its own fault that it's done so. But the really extraordinary thing, Scott, about the special rapporteur, and we don't know who this person might be, when they'll be appointed, although the prime minister has said it'll be soon. We don't know the terms of reference. But the astonishing thing is this, that uh, Trudeau said that Whatever this special rapporteur recommends, you know whether it's a public inquiry or some other set of recommendations to enhance Canada's ability to respond to foreign independence, whatever he says, she says, the government will automatically accept it. That is actually unheard of in the history of Canadian policymaking to outsource uh, a government responsibility for dealing with national security threats to some, some outside expert, no matter how good impartial eminent etc it is really i just think a, a complete application of responsibility you know the responsibility is a tough one for the government at, at the moment because it's under fire from all directions but it's still the government's uh, responsibility to make national security policy you can't outsource that
2: As you said, Mess, Uh, Wesley Wark with a senior fellow for the Center for International Governance Innovation. Wesley, fascinating discussion. I hope we talk again. Thanks for the time. Be well.
4: Thank you. Thank you very much, Scott.
0: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's Talk 900 CXML.
2: All right, lots of chatter over the last little while, especially now that we realize we need to, uh, right across the country, uh, build more uh, residential uh, homes for people, uh, simply because uh, the demand has far outstretched the supply. Uh, Then, of course, the big debate comes, how do we do this uh, with um, infield density versus expanding urban boundaries and going into green belts? And and that's obviously what the discussion of the day has been. I think if I could give any advice to anybody on any of this it's just learn more about all of it learn more about the Green belt and what it's about and how it was designed and what the objective is of it and um, and and that's how we'll better manage it not only today but five years from now fifteen twenty or twenty five years from now as literally the areas all around the green belt will will uh, expand so there's a new report for the Alliance for a livable Ontario that says Hamilton does not need to build homes on on the Greenbelt lands to support the immigra- uh, the incoming population boom. We've talked about this several times as well. Let's bring in Kevin Eby, author of this report, and is with us now. Kevin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
1: Hi, I'm doing well, Scott. Thank you very much.
2: Oh, so Kevin, let me throw this out here right now because, you know, I'm trying to wade through all this and trying to make sense of, of both sides of, of what is happening here. And obviously, you know, the housing boom that we're going to be going through if we're not already. Um, and, and that is the reason that they were going into the green belt is because it is close to, uh, serviceable land, which will be easy to accommodate, uh, you know, a housing neighborhood. Uh, as far as, uh, um, this other area called the white belt which is between an urban boundary and uh between the green belt many of this uh, or much of this land is not being serviced and that's why people are talking about moving into the green belt is there any well, what are your thoughts on 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 that angle
1: well i think the the first thing to understand is the study that we did took a look at before all of this happened how much capacity was there in in the Greater Golden Horseshoe, which includes Hamilton, to build new homes? And in fact, what we found was there was almost two million uh, uh, capacity for approximately two million new homes, where the uh, the the province is looking at a housing target of only one point five million. So what we we've demonstrated through a review of of various reports that are. Per- Ah, uh, prepared by municipalities is there was no need to move into the green belt in order to accommodate the housing targets that the province has established. And we have sorry these go are ahead. lands the 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 lands that we reviewed are lands that have been in the urban area for a decade and, and have been included in updates to things like infrastructure master plans.
2: Um, again, we've been having various guests on all sides of this, and, and just as you're saying, there's probably I've heard anywhere from twenty to forty years worth of building that can be done before you have to go into uh, that sort of thing. But the problem is, is that area there's no um, there's no incentive for the municipalities to service that. There's no incentive for the they don't want to expand into that white area, and that that is not being fully utilized, and that is at the municipal level your thoughts
1: right well the white belt is typically described and part of the problem is the how we describe all the lands is confusing the white belt is typically described as the area between where the current urban area is and yes. the urban areas where you can build things and the green belt and yes. there's no incentive to go into there partly because we don't need the land in the white belt in a lot of cases in order to meet the demands for housing that exist in the various municipalities. So, of course, they don't want to spend money to service land that isn't necessarily required to delivering the housing they need in accordance with the forecasts uh, that the province uh, dictates that they plan for.
2: Kevin, I'm really getting confused here because we all know there's a grand need for more supply. The demand is outstretching the supply. Uh, we're talking about there's no need to go into the green belt, yet nobody is interested in developing the white belt. So where do we build these homes?
5: Well,
1: the the current designated urban areas uh, are where housing is already or, or there is approval for housing to be built on lands. So that's within the current urban areas. And then you have the white belt, then you have the green belt. They're yes. outside the urban boundaries. Mm-hmm. Within the urban areas, there is a huge amount of capacity that's available. And and what you've got is you know, I'll, I'll maybe simplify it a little bit here. What what we've the problem that we've got is the construction of housing is a lot uh, like the process is a lot like a funnel. And uh, at the top of the funnel, you've got the large hole where you put in the land that's available to build houses, the areas within the built-up area where there's already houses where you can build more. And, And then there's a series of processes that that all goes through. And out the small hole in the bottom come houses. And there's lots of things that happen in the middle there uh that's so what's the solution here
2: kevin what what's the solution here because again uh the homes aren't going into the green belt nobody wants to develop the white belt or that area outside the urban boundary so where are the homes coming from
1: well the solution is develop on the lands that are already designated a a huge within okay kevin let me i'm just and i'm just interrupting i'm
2: interrupting because we're short on time but why are we not developing on those lands what's preventing us from doing that
1: well, I, I think what you've got is you've got a series of things that, uh, such as supply, uh, construction material supply issues, you've got issues associated with the uh, developers uh, not, I'm sorry, the home builders not having enough labor. You have, uh, in some cases, the wrong types of units that are coming onto the marketplace. You've got changes that are occurring, dramatic changes that are occurring in the marketplace because of affordability, et cetera. And what you've got is you've got a housing industry which hasn't adapted to what I think is a new reality that we're all facing.
2: So you're saying, Kevin, that it's the housing industry and not the municipalities that are, you know, like I'm not hearing a lot of solution here, Kevin.
1: Oh, I I, (laughs) I think there are a lot of solutions that are there and it's every, there is a housing issue and it's everybody's problem. There are several components to the housing issue. The affordable housing is something that typically is not well delivered by the private sector. It's typically delivered. I'm just security. not sure,
2: Kevin, what all of this has to do with getting back into the Greenbelt. Uh, but anyway, we're out of time. Kevin Eby with us, the report's author. Uh, Alliance for a Livable Ontario says Hamilton does not need to build homes on the Greenbelt land in order to support a incoming population boom. Uh, thanks, Kevin, for the time. Much appreciated. All right. Speaking of Hamilton, by-election coming up, March 16th, uh, Advance polls on March 8th and 9th, and obviously this is in regard to the Hamilton Center by election. Hamilton Center seat, obviously left vacant by Andrea Horbath when she moved on to become the mayor of Hamilton, hence the by election coming up on the 16th. Let's introduce you to Lucia Yanantuono, candidate for the Green Party and with us now. Lucia, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
7: Hey, Scott. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm doing okay. How about yourself?
2: So far, so good. Uh, many may not know you. To those that don't, tell us what your thoughts for Hamilton I- I- are, and 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 what we should know about you, the person.
7: Um. Well, let me let me do a quick nutshell wrap up of myself. So, I moved to Hamilton in 2014 to study electrical engineering at McMaster, and so my my day job is doing uh, electronics design, but I've done some work in sort of uh, renewable energy stuff with a local Hamilton business, which uh, ties in fairly well to climate action. Uh, Starting a couple of years ago, I became involved with the Ontario Greens and I'm also uh, strongly involved with Hamilton 350. And so this was a natural extension of my climate activism was to run for office and highlight the importance of, of these issues.
2: And where do you see Hamilton going in in the next couple of years? Obviously, there's an LRT on the way. We're obviously Mm -hmm. dealing with expenses from uh, the post-pandemic period. What do you see the big challenges in the next couple of years? Say zero to five.
7: (laughs) Uh, I mean, challenges and also opportunities, right? So like, Hamilton is so exciting because we are having all these investments happen. We're getting to reimagine what our city looks like as we do projects like the LRT project, as things get built here, as industries look to become part of the green economy here. Like we kind of have a once in a generation opportunity to make changes to make our city better. And whether that's connecting people, connecting people with transit and cycling and making sure that our city, especially the lower city here in Hamilton Center, is a nice place for people to easily get to the things that they need without having to be stuck in traffic. Things like making sure that we take of our urban trees that exist and that we plant more of them so that in the summertime, instead of walking down a street that's absolutely baking in the sun, we can make sure that people are going to be able to enjoy being outside. We want to make sure that our infrastructure is ready to handle what's ahead you know here in Hamilton we've spent a lot of time talking about things like sewer gate we need to make sure that you know beyond just leaks that weren't meant to happen we need to make sure that under normal operating conditions as rains get intense and heavy and and that we're ready to deal with that precipitation that we're ready to uh, address those sort of bigger structural issues.
2: Uh, let me play devil's advocate here, Lucia. If, if uh, you, obviously you're from the Green Party, many have said you know, too environmental, uh, environmentally skewed, and and obviously this is a major priority for the majority of Canadians. So that being said, well,
7: yes, it is. Absolutely. It is. I mean, it's not. It's I mean, in the it, top three concerns. Yes, if you, absolutely. If you go ask people on the
2: street. Yeah, absolutely. And, and which is why you're seeing most political parties with some sort of of a position on it. That being said, what do you say to those that are concerned? It's all about about that. And it's not about the business of Hamilton, the business of the province and and just in, in the other managerial things that need to be done beyond that.
7: Yeah. So I was talking just this morning with a representative from the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, and we got along just great talking about how Hamilton has an opportunity to lead. Right. You know, we can see where the play is going, and that is towards the green economy. There's over a trillion dollars up for grabs for new green industry and sustainable materials. And Hamilton can be the leader in Ontario and even in Canada by accelerating that transition. So I think that something that I hear a lot is people going, well, isn't this a single issue? It's not a single issue. We're talking about the, the sort of the basis, the underlying thing that everything else is built on is making sure that we have stable infrastructure, healthy, connected communities, where we can live and do business and go to work and and recreate and do all the things that we need to do. We need to make sure that that base minimum level is met that we've got the lights on, we've got clean water, uh we've got, you know, building densely so that we're not expanding out and expanding our tax costs like we can design our cities to be smarter and and better, and this is an opportunity for us to do that.
2: Uh, Here's, I'm just pulling this right out of the air. Um, your thoughts on the natural gas pipeline down to ste- uh, down to Defasco, rather uh, to get it off coal?
7: Yeah. So I think that the point to hammer home in the couple minutes that we have here is that folks, we need more information. We need full costing. We need full emissions reduction numbers. Like we need to make sure. That the deal that we are entering into is going to be a good one that it's going to be a good one for the long term there's a lot of public money being put into this process and it's money well spent if it's going to be a good pathway for permanent uh green jobs we want to make sure that there's no way that that this money is going to be misallocated to actually funding fossil fuels
2: um, I've always said, you know, the key to all of this is first getting the world off coal. Sometimes I get m- that mixed reaction with that from those in the green movement or the green party and such. I honestly think this is an example of what the world should be doing and why should we should be helping as a transition fuel with la- liquid natural gas to get the rest of the world off of coal. Any thoughts on that? A little bigger than the city, but we're throwing it out there. <laughs> yeah, so
7: here's part Here's part of the tr- trouble, the nuance, right, is that we know carbon's bad. We know coal is bad. We're just beginning to understand understand how bad methane is and one of the big concerns we have is that natural gas has huge amounts of methane leaks so that's why I say we we need information we mm-hmm. need information as much as possible so we can make sure that we're making the best possible decision
2: all right uh last question Mike schreiner is he going to the liberals what's that all about
7: <laughs>
2: do, do you know here do you know who your leader gonna be what's going on here <laughs>
7: He was very, he was very clear. He, he took the time to talk with his constituents in Guelph because at the end of the day, Green Party people are not, we're not as hyper-partisan. Like he actually gave it some serious thought. He talked to people and they overwhelmingly told him, Hey man, like we want you to stay with the Greens. The Greens are, uh, you know, so, so important at advancing the dialogue here in Ontario. And he said, yeah, absolutely. I'm with you. I'm staying with the Greens.
2: Lucia Yan with us, candidate for the Green Party running in the Hamilton by-election for Hamilton Center. Uh, Of course, the election March 16th, advance polls 8th and 9th. Lucia, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Be well.
7: Thanks. And I'll just plug quickly. There's a debate tonight, 7 p.m., Cable 14.
2: Cable 14 tonight, 7 p.m. debate. Thank you. Good luck.
7: (laughs) Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: All right, we've uh, talked a lot in the last few weeks, months, what have you, uh, post-pandemic, whatever you want to call it, uh, of how the rising cost of uh, everything, affordability, interest rates, everything going up through the roof, and it has become very, very difficult, including when it comes to putting food on the table, and we've talked about this before, and and major grocery chains uh, should they have their feet held to the fire and lower those prices wow 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 wow! where do you go with this uh tomorrow the heads of canadian grocery uh grocers will be at the house of commons agricultural committee in regards to the price of food and their high profits let's bring in dr sylvain charlebois professor of food distribution and policy director of the AgriFood analytics lab at Dalhousie university and with us now sylvain thanks for the time i hope you're doing well Yes, I'm doing very well. How about you? So far, so good. Your thoughts on this, Selvan? We've talked about this so many times. Um, What are we going to see? Is this just to make us all feel better?
8: Well, based on what I'm seeing on Twitter from Jackman Singh, I'm not truly going to accomplish anything. Uh, It's going to be, it looks like it's going to be some sort of showdown between politicians and and CEOs. And uh, I think. Politicians will continue to try to politicize the issue of food inflation without trying to understand what is going on. And I think it deserve some uh, deserve a committee uh, which is trying to understand uh, this this food inflation uh, storm we're in. I mean, this is a global phenomena, and uh, but grocers are responsible for selling our food, and so they they need. They need a voice, they need to explain themselves, and uh, hopefully the committee will listen.
2: Uh, At the end of the day, we're seeing that grocers' uh, profits are up. That's what the public is seeing now. We understand that can include the melding of different categories, including pharmacy and such, which obviously has seen an increase in a pandemic uh, world. So uh, uh, is that what this is about? Is that the the sort of explanation that, that is needed here?
8: I think there's a couple of questions I would ask if I were if I was a member of the committee. I certainly would ask uh, how how much profits come from food sales specifically. That's I think that's a no-brainer. But I would certainly dig deeper into these blackout periods. Vendors aren't allowed to uh, increase prices from November to February. Well, we all know that prices. Uh, are jacked up in, in October and jacked up again in February. We just saw that in February. And so I certainly would ask CEOs how consumers benefit from these blackout periods. Is, is this needed? And then is this like some sort of collusion? I mean, how does that work? Certainly, I think Canadians would want to know. And thirdly margins. Now, margins have been steady, but in Canada, operational margins are double of what they are in grocery business compared to the U.S. So that's a lot. And so the reality in Canada is that our market is not all that competitive and frankly not all that attractive to invest in because of of uh, interprovincial uh, trade barriers, uh, labor laws, Uh, The red tape, it's just incredible. I could go on and on and on, but the market is not competitive all that much. So as a committee, I think it would be important to focus on how to make Canada a more attractive market to invest in, to attract companies like Little or Aldi to help consumers in the end.
2: So you said uh, not competitive enough, so therefore we need more players, more larger players into the mix, and and is what you're saying, regulations are such that it's not that attractive for more players to come in?
8: Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, Little and Aldi are true discount grocers. Uh, we don't have a discount grocer in Canada at all. Mm. Uh, we have... Costco, and Costco is, uh, is a place where you buy a lot of stuff. You need a car. You need space as well. Uh, and that's basically it. And uh, so how do we actually make that happen? And, and the, the, only reason, the only thing you can do is to make Canada more attractive. I mean, last week we heard that Nordstrom was leaving Canada. A few years ago, Target left Canada in a hurry. We saw Lowe's leave Canada, Sears as well. I mean, it's not an easy market to service. And so we need to be honest with ourselves. It's been cozy for grocers, but it's been cozy for grocers because to actually create more competition has been very difficult.
2: Uh, You talked about the blackout period um, and, and freezing prices. Can you explain, elaborate that, elaborate on that a little bit more?
8: the blackout i mean it's been a practice uh, for a long time for many many years and so this is between grocers and and their suppliers and so it's been agreed upon that from november 1st to january 31st they don't raise prices just because it's the it's the holiday season it's very busy right. they don't have time to change prices well that was 30 years ago now today uh i mean a lot of the pricing in store is uh, is digitized, so you don't necessarily need to manually change prices all the time. Hmm. You just basically, you know, flick a switch essentially. And so the blackout period is something that I think needs to be addressed because it could lead, it could potentially lead to some collusion, which is something that I don't think we want
2: i remember you talking about that when uh everybody was upset uh over or before christmas for the holidays about this about them freezing uh prices until the new year and i remember you suggesting that well what's going on here uh do you think we will find anything out from this uh new uh, agricultural committee will this advance the discussion in any way
8: I think the one thing. Uh, so it's only an hour, and and uh, have like six minutes to ask questions. And I don't think we're not. Well, I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of anything. But yeah. what I think people are going to learn uh, about uh, are the personalities of these CEOs. I've met all three of them. I know them. They have different personalities. And uh, I think, I think. I mean, if you watch very closely, you'll see that some CEOs are. Shall we say less patient than others?
5: <laughs> hmm, hmm. I'll put
8: it this way, yeah. <laughs> and it's not so, being Western, by the way.
2: So how are they? How are they going to react to what the government is suggesting? What What do you think the grocers are going to do? What do you think their reaction is going to be to this?
8: Well, I think uh, – so b- given that they're CEOs and uh, I suspect – I'm hoping that, that members won't come in with, uh, with, with questions that are, are already prepared. Uh, they, they need to listen and respond and react to uh, what they're saying. That will actually make for a much more interesting conversation because when I testified myself on December 5th, I was actually there personally uh, testifying before the same committee about the same subject. Uh, all questions were prepared in advance. It was really boring.
2: Hmm. Um, do you think there's a chance we will see more competition? That obviously usually makes things more positive, no matter which end of this that you're on. It, 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 do you see that happening?
8: Uh, not anytime soon. No, I think I think uh, Canada has a lot of work to do. We don't have one Canada. We have we have several provinces with different sets of rules and, mm. and 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 to compete nationally it's, it's very difficult if you can be in ontario do well but uh, if you want to develop a network nationally it's just very very difficult
2: Dr. Sylvain Chalabaw with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy and Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Tomorrow, Canadian Grocers on the line, House of Commons Committee, Agriculture Committee, asking about food prices. Will we change things? Sylvain, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve
9: into the issue until he
0: is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
2: In regard to the planned construction at Delta High School, the Delta High School site uh, high rises on the plan. Residents nearby, the former school, are worried about the height and how many units there will be and the densification into the neighborhood. Let's bring in Jeff Paikin, president of New Horizon Development Group and is with this now jeff thanks for the time i hope you're well
9: thank you very much Scott. my pleasure uh,
2: jeff we know that uh, there's uh you know a demand for housing low supply a mad dash on to, to to get back to at least where we were or at least try to help out in some way how do you balance all of this a lot of this is about densification already within the city limits which is what you're doing here and obviously concerns about residents nearby how do you balance it what are the challenges for you
9: well first and foremost, we you know, look at every piece of property as an opportunity to create what will be a long-term beneficial community for any neighborhood. And, you know, those. the outcome of that has many different looks and the judgment of that has many different judges. And so, you know, we don't pretend that we're going to be perfect for everyone, but it's within a context of uh, what is appropriate given all the various factors and and i'll give you an example you know if the last building built in a community and i'm not speaking about delta specifically but in a community is a 40 year old 15 story building does that mean 20 stories across the street is inappropriate because 40 years ago 15 stories was Mm. i'm not here to give you the answer but those are the kind of juggling decisions we have to make to try and keep things within parameters of of good development, you know, good neighborhood building, that sort of thing. And so Delta, and and I'll just correct you on one thing, they are mid-rises, they are not high-rises based on the height, Uh, and that's very much intentionally. We didn't think Delta was a high-rise opportunity, we thought it was a mid-rise opportunity.
2: And what is your response to the concern of area residents that is going to be too high, they're going to block sunlight, and that you're densifying too much within that, in that neighborhood and, and it'll just be too crowded?
9: So in the context of a housing crisis, uh, you know, there's, there's many different approaches and many different answers. Uh, shadowing is a non-issue based on how we've designed the plan. We've put townhouses on the entire periphery of the plan uh, in order to be appropriate in context with the single-family homes across the street. And we've put the density in the middle of the plan uh, so that the affected people by the density are the people who are buying into this overall development. Mm -hmm. So I really think it's, um, you know, within the context of good planning, it fits with a lot of check marks. Um, I understand there are other opinions and I understand that there are people that have lived in that neighborhood and are extremely happy living there and they should be. uh, And that change is difficult. And so, uh, you know, as the change agent, you get used to hearing these kind of arguments and this kind of pushback that are not, you know, I don't look at them as negative or positive. I look at them as feedback that helps us shape where things go. And there's been a lot of forward work done on this one and a lot of back and forth with uh, community members and city staff in order to get to where we are, which we think is a pretty good landing point.
2: So obviously meeting tonight, minutes from now, what do you hope to accomplish there?
9: So this is, you know, it's called a meeting, but it's more of an open house. Uh, we have various different... Uh, groups, architects, landscapers, planners—all the various components that went into the thought process and the design—and it's it's not a formal meeting. It's a it's a go from station to station as a you know concerned neighbor, mm-hmm. as an interested citizen, as somebody who's for it or against it, and give us feedback on each of the aspects of what we've put together. This is not a formal, legislated meeting. It's a voluntary introduction to the community of what we have in mind, and we want to hear what they have to say. And it's it's not intended to be, you know, there's one side or there's the other. This is an open book information session, and we have people with a lot of ears and and not a lot of mouths tonight to listen to what people have to say to record it in writing. In order to bring all that feedback back from this session, and make sure that we got it right.
2: Jeff Pagan with us. I know you got to run, Jeff, president of New Horizon Development Group. Meeting going to start in minutes. Uh, Obviously, Delta High School midrise is planned for that area. The uh, The meeting starting in about five minutes. Jeff, thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck.
0: Pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: All right, you might have seen the footage of this uh, on the news and pretty scary. I mean, you know what it's like to be in an airplane and I've never had this happen, thank goodness. But you can imagine what it would be like to all of a sudden have the cabin filled with smoke. Uh, that's what happened on a recent Southwest flight, had to perform an emergency landing over after hitting a flock of birds, a bird strike. Same thing that brought that plane down in the Hudson River way back when in New York. Let's bring in Keith Mackey, aviation safety consultant, Mackey International, and with us now, Keith, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott, and I hope you are also. So far, so good. I, I'm watching this report, Keith, and, and, you know, we've talked about this several times in bird strikes, and it's just one of those things that happens when you're putting planes in the air and such. But I think what brought my attention and, and I wanted to call you about was the amount or the number in North America, or I guess I saw an American number, well, it was well over 10,000 uh, incidents where this happens. This happens quite a bit, doesn't it?
10: Well, bird strikes are not that unusual because we have to transition through the area where most birds fly, and occasionally uh, you're going to hit one. They really can't be avoided easily.
2: So, how uh, how do you deal with this as a pilot? Obviously, it's only in the most severe situations where we have something like happened with a south flight, a Southwest flight happen. Uh, but but as a pilot, when you're uh, by, you know behind the, the, the controls, there, what do you do?
10: Well, in the case of uh, the Hudson River ditching, they flew through a large flock of Canadian geese. Mm -hmm. And the geese uh, put both engines out of service. So effectively, they're flying a glider. Luckily, they made the right decision to put it in the Hudson River. Now, in today's incident, we don't know exactly what happened yet. They say they hit some birds. Uh, Apparently, at least one engine kept running. Uh, it's a little puzzling as to why the cabin was so filled with smoke. I can think of a couple of things. If they'd uh, shut down the engine, and I believe it was the right engine at least that was affected, then that would shut the uh, air supply to the air conditioning and pressurization off from that engine, and they shouldn't have gotten any uh, smoke in the cabin. If so what kept the engine... Sorry? No, go ahead. If they kept the engine running, it's possible that uh, some debris could have gotten into the uh, what we call the bleed port, where they take the air off the engine. Or since they were down low, the air conditioning system has a radiator with a door on it, and the door would have been open because of the low altitude and because of the warmer temperatures. And if a bird got in there and... Uh, Clogged the radiator, it could certainly affect the temperature and possibly the uh, smoke that was in the cabin. We really don't know what happened. We don't have very much information. It's possible that uh, the right engine was damaged and it uh, uh, shut off the air conditioning supply, and then the left engine hit the uh, radiator with a bird, and that caused the compounded issue. So until someone looks at it that's knowledgeable, and gives us a complete report. We really can't tell exactly what the cause of it was, other than birds.
2: Is there any way to avoid a bird strike, Keith? Or is it just, you know, like you said, you put planes in the air, there's birds there, and it's, you're on a uh, on a flight path, it, it, it happens. Is there any way to avoid this?
10: Well, uh, avoid... Uh, taking off and landing over areas that are completely infested with flocks of birds. Right. Uh, that's generally done. Sometimes if there's an airport that is having a bird problem, they'll a- advise people and close one runway that's most affected by it. But uh, there's no way to see them. There's no way to see them on radar.
0: Hmm. I mean,
10: you can see them certainly, but when you're traveling at jet speeds, You can't really uh, maneuver the aircraft to avoid a bird. It just Mm. isn't going to work. Although I've got a lot of experience flying helicopters with birds. And one thing I've learned is when you're approaching a bird, and of course you're going much slower than in a jet, the bird will always fold his wings and dive. So if you slow down and climb, you're going to miss them. And Mm. I've had a lot of experience with that, and I've never hit one yet.
2: Wow, that's. Is there anything you can do to the aircraft to make birds avoid it? Uh, whether that's screen over the intakes, whether that you know anything that uh, anything that makes a noise is, is that just poppycock?
10: This is going to sound really silly, but it supposedly works. If you look at a picture of the front of a jet engine, right on the hub on a spinner there you'll see kind of a corkscrew-like shape sometimes painted yeah. on there. yes. And uh, I think it was the Japanese that discovered that when they did this, it made the birds much more aware. I guess it looked like eyes or something coming out. Right, right. And it really cut down on the, the bird incidents because the birds are actually taking the evasive action rather than the pilot's. So that's one thing, at least. Other than that, I'm not aware of anything else.
2: You know what, Keith? I always wondered why there was that painting or that marking there, but it actually has a purpose. It does. That is fascinating. Not
10: everyone does it, but uh, the airlines that do, apparently, have found it to be successful
2: interesting keith mackey with his aviation safety consultant mackey international southwest flight you may have seen the footage emergency landing after a bird strike fills the cabin uh, with smoke keith as always thanks so much for the time be well you too scott take care
6: the independent special rapporteur will make public recommendations which could include a formal inquiry or some other independent review process
2: That is the Prime Minister speaking yesterday, about uh, 5.30-ish, late-day news conference, uh, and lots of pressure from opposition. They want a public inquiry. That has not changed, and uh, what the Prime Minister has come up with is short of a public inquiry, but a committee to study whether a public inquiry is needed, a committee to study whether another committee is needed. Uh, That being said, it seems uh, we're at a crossroads here. What does that mean for the country moving forward? Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant sumus strategies. He's with us now. Daniel, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
11: Same to you, Scott.
2: Your thoughts on what you're seeing unfold, Daniel, and and where we are, uh, before I even ask a question, Uh, is this a mess?
11: Uh, I think a mess is an understatement of what it is. It's the most Ottawa thing in the world to create a committee, to look at seeing if we need another committee to look at this issue. Uh, Like Clearly, the Prime Minister's office is in panic mode and the sky is falling for them, I would say, at the moment
2: uh a rapporteur i've never heard this used in this uh, context before uh why the use of that term obviously pierre polyev is going to jump on that that's what he does um but but is this made to make it sound more official more are we just making a mountain out of a molehill here we're talking more about the word than what we're actually going to accomplish here
11: I think it's honestly a little bit of both. Uh, The ward is a little bit ridiculous for what the position is. Uh, I think the government is trying to come out strong after they flip-flopped on this to hopefully put it to bed. So I think that's why we landed on such a fancy title. With that said, I think no matter what we called it, they would be complaining from the opposition because basically this is the government's move to try to silence it.
2: Uh, So have they? Where do we go from here? Opposition seems to still be chomping at the bit for a public inquiry.
11: Uh, I think the opposition will continue to be chopping at the bit because this is an issue that clearly resonated with Canadians and some of that Canadians were not too happy about. So Justin Trudeau made the right move to kick it to uh, the equivalent of our National Security Committee because it'll just sit there for 18 months. And if we have another election and this government loses, it'll go away. So it was a good way for the government to solve the problem. But if I was an opposition member, I would be pretty mad because this was supposed to be a silver bullet
2: um obviously the uh the, the Liberal government does not want to address this with a public inquiry does the more they kick this down the road does it look as if they are trying to hide something
11: uh, I would say so I, I think it's not a good look for them to just say oh we're going to deal with this in the back room of Ottawa um because when you're look, talking about tr- improving trust in democracy uh it usually doesn't happen in the back room when most Canadians aren't able to see it. So I, I think people are right to be mad, people are right to be upset, but also at the same time, if they are doing what they're saying, and I'll give this government a break. If we want to talk about top secret information, you need to have top secret clearance. And this is a, a way to do it, but I don't think it's going to satisfy the average Canadian then, because I think most people are pretty mad about this.
2: So, uh, you know, and I've talked to various experts on this on both sides of the issue, and and some are saying that there's, well, it, it allows me to ask the question, so is there nothing we can do to find out if there was any foreign interest or foreign interference and what the extent of it was and who knew about it without exposing deep, dark national secrets? Can we not do that?
11: That is a great question, and I would also like to see an answer to that. The government is very clearly trying to avoid this uh, like it's a plague, so they will throw everything at it's top security. Um, I'm sure there are ways we can get to it. I think what um, the government is concerned about is talking about ways that they gather national security and intelligence. They don't want to expose um, their methods of doing it. So I'm assuming that's why they're trying to push it down a little bit and send it that way. But with that said, if there's nothing to hide, be honest with Canadians, be upfront, and be able to share what you knew and when you knew it, instead of hiding things. Because lying to people very, very rarely makes it better. Um,
2: many have uh, alluded to in the past that this government is soft on China. Is that because, in your opinion, it seems to be benefiting them, or are they just dropping the ball?
11: i think they're just dropping the ball um to be honest with you even our relationship with this government we've always had a hard time with china because china doesn't really see us as a global player that really impacts their markets they realize that if if we close their border and we have issues that we'll have issues where they close the border to us they can continue on so we're kind of a small fish to them so I think it's unfair to say that the government has been soft on this just because they benefited them or allegedly benefited them. I think it's just how it goes with the Canadian relationship.
2: Daniel, what about the fact that this has happened twice over the last two elections, uh, and all of a sudden we're talking about it now? I mean, if it's a one-time occurrence, that's one thing, but obviously we're seeing a trend here, and it's happened a couple of times in the last two elections. Why are we seeing this now?
11: I think it's because the leak came out, to be honest with you, a third time would have been a charm in this instance, but thankfully we've got some insight saying that something bad probably happened and now we're actually talking about it. And I think if it wasn't for the bravery of the whistleblower to release the information, we probably wouldn't have known about it. So it's because someone was courageous enough to stand up and say this is wrong and spoke out.
2: What about opposition reaction here? Uh, Jugmeet Singh, obviously very critical of the government, but he also has the switch to to fl- you know to turn off if so uh, desire. Um, he said he would accept nothing other than a public inquirer Inquiry, and then we've got a clip of him saying, you know, but I think we should all have a say on who this repertoire is. So, what side of the fence is he going to fall on here?
11: Uh, I think he's going to fall on the one whichever the government tells him to do, because I think he's realizing that. Even though he's supposed to be a partner with this government, he's very much not the one with the controls for this relationship, which is quite sad because at the end of the day, I think we all know Justin Trudeau isn't going to go to the polls right now. So if Jake Mead Singh really wants to show his power and really wants to show Canadians he can get it done, I think this would be a great time for him to stand up.
2: Many have said Jagmeet Singh's not going to pull the trigger because this is the most power he's ever had and the most power they most likely will have with being a trigger to holding up the government and such. However, considering the way things have gone for the Liberal Party and those on the left still want a viable candidate, at what point does he say, you know what, Uh, to heck with them, I'm going to make a run for this?
11: Uh, I think if he has a time, I think the window is getting a little bit bigger every day because I think frustration with this prime minister is, is growing. Uh I think those that are on the left are disappointed that this government hasn't been progressive enough, where those kind of in the center are, are frustrated that he's been too progressive. So if there's a time to shine, Jagmeet, I think the sun's looking your way.
2: All right, and what about a walk in the snow for the prime minister? Uh, is he going to take this right to the very end, or is is it the is it the party? Is it the leader? Uh, is, is a leadership change in the cards before we even get to that stage?
11: Well, just before we came on, I did look at the forecast for the next fourteen days in Ottawa. It doesn't look like we'll be getting a snow. <laughs> uh, if I had to guess, uh, Scott, I would say he'll be sticking this out. He has fought many battles. He's dodged a lot of scandals. And I just think when you're a prime minister for as long as he is, you want to go down fighting. And I think that's what's going to happen in the next election is he's going to throw some punches and hope he can save the day.
2: Many will say there's a few standing in the wings that could do the job. Does this create tension within the party?
11: Uh, It definitely has. There's been tension in the party for a while now. There have been a number of liberals who have been frustrated with how Justin Trudeau has performed uh, honestly, since COVID began. And I think we saw that over the summer where some cabinet ministers were allegedly planning their run to take over until the prime minister made it very clear, I'm not going anywhere, stop or you're at a cabinet. So I definitely can see that people are getting frustrated with him, the fractions are starting to form. But at the end of the day, one day in government is way better than a lifetime in opposition. So I think hmm. he's going to stick around for a little bit longer.
2: Only got a few seconds left. Some uh, will say that this is Pierre Poilievre's election to lose. How does he not lose it?
11: <laughs> That's a question every conservative likes to ask. I think he's just keep doing what he's doing, staying on message, attacking Trudeau, realizing that Trudeau is vulnerable right now, and just keep pressing and getting out of Ottawa as much as possible and actually talking to real Canadians. Because us in Ottawa, we're not real Canadians. We don't really know what's going on with out, throughout Canada is he who is he too divisive I don't think so I think he's giving a voice to some frustration that a lot of people have been feeling for a long time so I think in that sense he's doing what he's supposed to be doing and as a opposition leader your job is not to make the government stay happy and to agree with them you're there to be as the title suggests the opposition and that's what he's doing right now and he's doing it well
2: Daniel Perry, consultant, Summa Strategies, where we are uh, the day after a committee to study whether we're going to have a public inquiry into all of the election interference stuff. Uh, Daniel, as always, thanks for helping to explain it all.
0: Be well. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: It's amazing to me because, you know, whatever belief everyone has, that they can decide what others do. And uh, playing 50 Mission, Cap, uh, Tragically Hip, apparently it was played at the venue where Pierre PolyEvra, leader of the conservative opposition, uh, was hosting a gathering, rally, fundraiser, whatever you want to call it, uh, in Stony Creek over the weekend. And somebody there complained uh, to the band, you know that Pierre PolyEvra is using your song
0: in a rally. And,
2: you know, the band flips out, Ah, no one's allowed to do that. ah, ah, ah. And I guess only those that are on the extreme left get to listen to the Tragically Hip. People like us in the center, uh, or me, personally, I don't want to speak for you. Uh, We're not allowed to listen to it anymore, I guess. I don't know. So after further investigation, uh, all of these people who decided it's up to them to decide what you get to listen to, uh, the hall is licensed with SOCAN, and like any, whether it's a wedding or a party or a convention, and there's dancing and whipping it up and stuff, uh, they pay rights to be able to play the music, and that was the situation here, so it's legally uh, bound, and there's nobody owes anybody any. Money, nobody owes anybody any permission to use anything, it's licensed (laughs) to use in public. But it's amazing how some people think it's up to, I guess, the musician to decide. Who gets to listen to their music? Who gets to play it when and where? That's bizarre that people think that they have that control over other people. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, a columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, and is coming up after the 6 o'clock news. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing fine. You know, I can completely understand if you're a musician or someone and, and, you know, these people are using something to promote them or what have you. I mean, I get that you don't want your work attached to that. I so, certainly understand it. But what amazes me here is fans honestly think that if they tell on each other and tell the musician that they can somehow decide who gets to enjoy the product. Bizarre to me.
6: Uh, is, is this not, though, in line with pretty much everything else that's going on now that yeah, every, everything yeah. must be yeah. everything must be polarized everything must be fought over um, look and, and this is not new I mean just in the last year yep. Neil Young pulled all of his music yep. off was it Spotify because Joe Rogan's podcast was on there Yeah, um, and he's entitled to do that absolutely sure. but there was
2: no legal there was nothing no ram- legal ramification here the venue's paying the license uh, I don't know how much it had to do with Ever, just the DJ they're playing but Scott but-
6: beyond that beyond that and you touched on it beyond that I am reasonably sure. I, I, I have no proof of this, but I would be willing to bet a lot of money if I was a gambling man. The Tragically Hip have made a few dollars off people who don't share their politics. Their <laughs> albums have been purchased by those on the right. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't say, no, we'd prefer if you didn't buy our albums and send us your money. They were very happy to take that money. There was no purity test about your political views before purchasing an album. So as long as you're willing to pay, we don't have any problem who listens to it or plays it at a party or mm. plays it at a wedding. What, what if there was a wedding between two members of the conservative party? Would they complain <laughs> that this was not the venue where this was allowed to be played? So as long yeah. as you pay, we don't really care what your politics are. But it's somehow seen as, as I say, like we're somehow endorsing this. It's a very different thing, Scott, if the Tragically Hip had played, right? That's an endorsement. If you show up and you play at an event, that is an endorsement of what that event is about, unless you're completely confused or someone misled you. But simply to have your music played, you know, if you've put it out into the public sphere – To me, that means that your music is now for the people, whoever the people might be.
2: And, you know, and again, to to defend the band here, they've realized the situation here and that the rights were paid and licensing fees have been paid and they've completely backed away from all of this. But it amazes me at, at the vitriol of the fans who think if you're going to do that, I'm not going to support you. I mean, there was a restaurant tour in Hamilton and Doug Ford showed up to his restaurant and he got bombarded by social media hate. And it's like...
1: The but guy's again, running a the
2: guy's running a business. Do you do you divide your business between males and females? Do you divide your business
6: between those depending on their political belief or their religion? This is just stupid. But again, that's where we are now, that all must be taking their sides. You have to dig in your trench and, you know, it, it's it's basically like watching the episode six of Band of Brothers when they're, you know, at Bastogne <laughs> and you're dug in for the winter for the for the battle of the bulge and you are on one side or the other and you can't go in the middle. And if you're on one side or the other, anything the other does must be horrible and you must hate it. Now, there are people and I actually think, Scott, there are a lot more people than we think. That find that ludicrous, but there are enough people with enough amplification possibilities on social media that it becomes loud enough that it becomes the story. You know,
2: politics have made us recently, since the Trump era, politics have made us pick a side. Even before you Trump. pick a side. Even before and, Trump. Yeah, I know, but that's when it became most publicized. It was most obvious. Um y- you know, they make us pick a side. It's like don't fall for that, Canadians. Don't fall
6: for having to pick a side and divide us. Go back to 1980. Oh, wait a second. What was the second term of Ronald Reagan? 80 or 84? I think it was 84. Anyway, Ronald Reagan won 49 states in the general election for president it is impossible in 2023 to imagine a hmm. a politician a yeah. leader because there are certain states that by default now are democrat and certain yeah. states that by default are cons- are republican and yeah. you could never possibly see electors voters saying, Oh, I'm okay with that person because I don't care what party he's in. He or she is a great candidate. Never. Now you are, you are born in that party. Your parents raise you in that party. You will fight for that party and you would never consider going the other way and and you it's just it's from birth almost now and mm. it's it is so divisive and and like again this is this is no I'm not breaking any news to anyone but this is just a perfect example of it a bloody song that canadians love <laughs> yes. that gets played and they're
2: fighting over it
6: <laughs> and somehow now this is something that we have to shut it down uh. because someone will be confused that the tragically hip or conservative and therefore what that I don't know. It, it, the whole thing is stupid. You have hit the nail right on
2: the head. It is silly. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley show coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator, as Always Scott. Thanks for the time. Have a great show. See you Scott.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hamilton today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900 CHML.com.
2: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the tax pay, and customer to have
11: the last word, David, wrote in to say hello Scott I have it on good authority from sources in the liberal party that Justin plans on using the same guy to chair the China inquiry as he used to help him decide to move forward with legalized pot in Canada. Some guy by the name of Snoop Dogg?